Uh, okay, we well welcome everyone again. Hopefully, some uh, uh, some of the PowerPoint will appear on the screen in a second. But it's great to have you with us this morning. Hope you've been enjoying the service so far and been stirred with the way God has been speaking to us already. Uh, to, today we're going to be doing the third part of a series that we started uh, three or five, so it was two weeks ago that Dave Nine kicked off a series looking at uh, Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 to 17, which we've entitled Living the New Life, a passage where Paul, uh, the apostle writing to the church in Colossae, hence why it's called Colossians, this is New Testament after Jesus' death and resurrection and uh, Christianity expanding, he writes this church a whole manner of things, and we're looking at a passage which is just really encouraging them to live their life as Christians should live their life in terms of what God has done in our lives, and then this, therefore, is how we should be living in terms of it's like God's moral standards. And they've covered the first four verses over the last uh, two weeks, and today, as you see, we're going to read from verses 5 to 11. So they should come up on the screen, and I'll read them. So put to death... Therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. Oh, it's got stuck already. It doesn't want to hear any more vices. It's, it's gone. Can we move it on, please? Okay. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which has been renewed in the knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and is in all. Do you know next week you're going to get nice... 11 grandchildren, Pastor Paul, <laughs> teaching you on all the nice things that Christians are supposed to do. And I got this passage of all this bad stuff that we're not supposed to do. What's God saying? Do you know, I think it's a... <laughs> but it's a bit of a... We can look at this passage, obviously it's stirring, it should be challenging us, but don't you think that many people's viewpoint of Christianity is almost what comes out, at least in part, if you don't read it carefully, this passage that Christianity is about a load of rules that where God is trying to get you to stop having all the fun and freedom of your life and saying, don't do that, don't do that, and don't do that. And Christians, who supposedly proclaim a loving, accepting God, spend all their time being turned into bigots and prudes, judging everyone for the way they're living life. And surely this verse is like looking like, oh my words, how do you feel when I was reading out all those things? You know, what was it, what, how's it coming across? Are you feeling excited about God speaking into your life in these areas? Or are you partly feeling a bit embarrassed and going, oh, I don't really want my mates at work to hear about these list of do's and don'ts. It doesn't come across very well. This is a quote from um, Tim Keller. All humans have moral feelings, and we call it a conscience. When considering doing something that we feel would be wrong, we tend to refrain... Our moral sense does not stop there, however. We also believe that there are standards that exist apart from us by which we evaluate moral feelings. Moral obligation is a belief that some things ought not to be done regardless of how a person feels about them. 
So, of course, you talk to your friends, and indeed yourself, there are just going to be some things that you feel they're just wrong. Full stop. It doesn't really matter what someone's opinion of it is. You know, molesting young children, etc., our society is just wrong. It doesn't matter how some people obviously seem to feel about it, and rightly so, we think, no, it's just fundamentally wrong. So it isn't exactly the, the concept of right and wrong that people disagree with and are challenged by, but who is making the decision about what is allowable and isn't allowable in our lives? What authority do they have and do I agree with it? But the concept of kind of there being things that just ought not to be done, I think is actually you push people and most people are there on it. But in this passage, as this commentator says, where many today believe that we should be left to ourselves to create our own morals from a smorgasbord of equally valid choices, in Colossians, Paul makes it clear that there are objective standards that Christians are expected to meet. This passage is worth saying is to the church, is to Christians. Paul isn't writing to the world in general that they, they shouldn't be doing these things. It's not saying that they're not a reflection on God's character and that they aren't just wrong in his sight. People are going to disagree with that, of course, and not like it. But he is writing to Christians and saying, there are objective standards for us. You've got to hear that. Another commentator puts like this, these teachers constitute an inescapable call to make the ethics of the saviour the ethics of the saved. And we'll look at that a little bit more later in some way Paul writes here. We're called to become like Jesus, aren't we? And he lived a certain way. And Paul, in many ways, is spelling out, maybe quite uncomfortably at times, and different ones of those lists of vices, those sins, quite uncomfortably maybe, saying it's going to look something like this, or not look like that, I should say. It's inescapable. Those who are followers of Jesus, those who Jesus has changed our lives from old to new, there's a way of living life that's associated with the old. That's what started off, therefore, from the passages that Dave looked at last week. That it's just incompatible with the life that Jesus has offered us in the new, his own very life. It's something that you just can't escape. It's something nailed in different places in the Bible, uncomfortable though that may often be. There are high standards, Jesus' own standards, but Christianity refuses, though sometimes we do our best, to be put into a box of rules, as saying it's just a list of do's and don'ts, this common misconception maybe with people out in the world thinking that's what Christianity looks like, it's just obey lots of religious rules, don't do this, do do that. And maybe if we're honest, some of the time that's how we end up sort of thinking of our lives, don't do this, do do this. But there's high standards, but it always comes out of a kind of a, this is who you are, therefore be. This is the life God has given you. This is the invitation he's given us to become more like him, to enjoy his grace and his love and his joy. Therefore, as changed new creation, we should be living in that light manner. And in this passage, it's often referred to kind of old and new. There was an old way of life. Paul has said before, you used to live this way, in your old way of life. And the passages at the start of Colossians 3 that Dave was looking at last week talked about, because it's all been put to death. Your old self is dead. You've got a new self. Therefore, put to death the things that are associated with the old way of life. Start living in a manner that is uh, the ethics of our Saviour, because we are now his saved. 
We've been adopted, haven't we, into God's family. He's our father and we're called to bear his likeness. They're enormously high standards. It's to become nothing short of being like God, to become godly, step by step, day by day, being renewed. But it's not just a list of rules. It's stuff that's called to flow out of our heart. And yet clearly, Paul nails these lists, and he does in various points in the New Testament, often sort of theologians, commentators call them vice lists, so that we are under no illusions about, oh my word, that's not compatible. It mustn't be in our life. So the lists there, there were two of them. And actually there's lots of debate and kind of why has he chosen those ones and is there any flow of thought in them and stuff like that. And there's a bit of debate and all the rest of it. They're not exhaustive, obviously. This is not the complete list of stuff that is considered sinful by God. And, uh, and you can sort of work your way around these ten things here. I haven't mentioned the 11th one yet, lying, we'll come on to that. But these two lists come out. So there's sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed. Just say sexual immorality, which so often appears at the front of Paul's list as essentially unlawful sexual activity. The Bible consistently speaks against any sexual activity and indeed the hard attitudes of impurity, lust and stuff that are outside of uh, a marriage. A man and a woman and their sexual activity in a marriage bed. Everything else uh, the Bible all the way through consistently frowns upon. And you see this list is quite personal. It's really speaking to, if you like, you, your actions, moving from outward to inwards. So it goes to inside your heart. So sexual immorality is fundamentally the outward acts do not have anything to do with these things. Impurity, kind of stuff that makes you impure. And lust, evil desires, greed kind of going into your heart. Again, so often you might hear people say, so long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, it's fine. But the, again, the Bible and God never, it, that's not how God views it. It's what's actually inside us that actually reflects who we are. And we are changed. Do not let these things get a grip of your inner being, your inner person when you've been created in you. And the second list if you like, is more community, although sin always affects us all, but is more community-minded, thoughtful of the ways we respond to each other and the relationships with each other, because we don't live life in isolation and certainly not in the church. So anger, rage, malice, slander and filthy language and actually moves from the inwards to the outwards. You know, anger obviously can boil over in different ways. Maybe it comes out as uh, slander or filthy language or something. It's very interesting, just in a list that gives a challenge, that of course some of the things on this list, loads of people around us in the world would think, what's that about? That's not a problem. And other things would probably still be more or less accepted today as no, that's just wrong. I mean, we've all probably got slightly different opinions on things like that in terms of how we think society as a whole, or your friends and work colleagues think of stuff. I mean, evil desires, you generally go, that's wrong, wouldn't you? It's kind of this kind of catch-all Thing. Greed. I mean, if you mention greed and bankers in the same word, you're generally going to get a response that's a bad thing. So sexual immorality, in terms of where the Bible does lie, most people just think it's just totally irrelevant. What are you talking about? You're even damaging yourselves if you restrict your sexual actions to where the Bible will draw the line. Why are you doing that? Slander. People probably don't like that too. There's always uh, uh, the Twitter trolls getting told off, probably being slandered about the slander they've been giving and all the rest of it. It's not viewed as good. Nobody really cares about filthy language, do they? Unless it's in front of children or indeed in our church building, bizarrely. 
number of times you'd get some worker appear at the church building just naturally speaking their sort of native language, you all sorry, God's house and all the rest of it, which is kind of interesting how the conscience of prick. But it's just, so we all, it's all this kind of what's wrong, what's right, a whole load of different opinions and felt things. And yet this is, this stuff is just not compatible with essentially being a Christian, who God has made you to be. It's undeniable, you can't escape it. There's no wiggle room. A quote here, the apostle teaches that the Christian's experience in Christ calls not simply for regulating the old earthbound life, but for digging out its roots and utterly destroying it. In this way, the new life in Christ will have full control over the believer. You know, we have encounter meetings that we call where we want to sort of just meet with God and we want to enjoy him here in a Sunday worship. We want God to come on us. We want the spirit of God to come on us. You know, we want to enjoy him. We want to become more like him. We want his life to overwhelm us. We believe he's good. He's full of joy. He's loving. We think it's great. We want to go with him. And if you think that that's separate from the way we live our moral life as if God somehow is not bothered with these things, we are just kidding ourselves. What a load of rubbish. We want to engage with God, that we must dig out the roots of things that are associated with how we used to be before we became new in Christ. Or maybe you're thinking, I'm not new in Christ yet. These are the things that are still part of my life. And God is wanting to you to come new in Christ, have mercy on you. Yet that is his objective stance. We can't avoid it. That's when we became Christians, those that have that in many ways, that's one of the things we reflected on. We repented. Thought, oh no, I've been living wrong. I want to live God's way. That first list, so putting to death, it's very strong graphic language. It's kind of like, and in fact Jesus in some of his Sermon on Mount talks to this type of thing. If you imagine a guy working in uh, some kind of uh, big workshop somewhere and he goes and gets his fingers trapped in some kind of big roller press thing and it's mangled his hand and his fingers and it's gradually wheeling him in and it's going to, like some horrible film thing or something, it's going to crush, it's going to kill him. He can't pull it out, totally stuck and there's some hacksaw or axe next to him and he picks it up and he cuts his own hand off to cut himself off, to get free. Gruesome, hard work, unpleasant, not much fun, but saves his life. The ridding, the, the second list talks about rid yourselves of. It's got a real clothing metaphor uh, in terms of the new self coming on. The next week, say, Paul's going to be looking at where it says clothe yourselves with and a load of positive virtues that are godly. It says rid yourself. It's like we are just wearing filthy, stinking rags, these actions before God, these behaviours, these vices. And there's just no point kind of putting a, a bigger coat on over the top and thinking now I look a bit better or uh, you know just anybody sometimes rush and I'll just spray a bit of deodorant and I hope that covers it for the night and you've never done that have you was washed properly but it requires stripping back totally everything comes off everything to your sort of core person naked if you like not a great thought maybe but stripping it all off getting rid of the lot not holding on to any of it Right to the roots, right to bear before God the life he's given you and building up from there to enclose yourselves. It's radical action. We're so, um, you know, we can so get accepting of some of the ways we live and our thought life and our actions 
that maybe we do indeed, we sort of start regulating our old life. I'm a bit better than I was. And I think they're a bit worse than me. We're so good at pointing at other people's sin, aren't we? And not our own, what's going on in us. And Paul, no, put to death, cut that hand off. Jesus talked about cutting, what good is it to us? Keeping both eyes and going to hell. Keeping both hands and going to hell. Cut it off. Ridding yourselves of it. Okay, we're so good, aren't we? Fooling ourselves. See, I think just to, if you like, hopefully bring some encouragement to this and stirring this. There's one passage, uh, one commentator comment says, Pre- Paul's frequent warnings against it, meaning uh, the sexual sins, in his letters suggest that society's latch lax sexual mores were not easily weeded out from the habits of converts in his churches. And I think you can say that, obviously, about all the lists. Why is Paul specifically writing these things? Well, presumably because they're still in the church. That although it's this radical call to put to death, and this radical call to rid yourselves of, presumably there was a need for saying these things. Again, so often maybe people think of the church, maybe think it says, we're the holy people. And we are because we've got new life in God. But we're the, you were probably still caught up in the stuff of old way. That's what needs writing to us again and again. No, no, come on, there's a new life. And if we're honest with ourselves, it's like actually maybe sometimes we haven't changed as radically and as strongly as maybe we had, would have liked to have done or even feel we should have done. Listen, God loves us. He accepts us. You've got to love and accept yourself. But we've got to put to death, get rid of the things God hates. I wonder if that's why Paul, after writing the turn list, then says, do not lie to each other. Because such a, people are going, oh yeah, they're really bad things. Oh, greed, that's terrible. They're a bit greedy. Oh, slander. Do you know what they've been saying recently? Well, it doesn't work, does it? It's a slander. Then Paul said, no, no, don't lie. Don't kid yourself. Who are you pretending? Well, those lists should be given to that person over there. They should really read through them carefully, meditate on them day and night. I'm glad I'm not like them. Don't lie. He wants to really nail it in us. He wants us to be free in a life has got, God has got for us. Let's not lie to ourselves. There's a tension, or at least a felt tension, between obviously we enjoy all God's love and mercy and acceptance, and we do, and we should, and we probably should more, not less. And therefore, not sort of intention with really, but it can feel attention, can't it? Therefore we want to cut off radically all the things that are just, and, and you know, then they're, they're never okay. We pretend it's like, no, I'm doing okay, and so there was a bit of, it's, ne- it's never okay. He's always holy. He always would have had to have gone to the cross for us. And somehow there's a tension, we mustn't lie to ourselves. I've been, <laughs> I've been challenged by this myself, I'm thinking, oh, I've, I've chatted to some people over this week, it's my own life. We can't lie to ourselves. I've not been doing too badly. They're always sinful, always wrong. And this sort of list can challenge us in our lives. And yet we do live in his grace and his mercy and he always loves us and accepts us. Listen, one of the passages, Paul kind of gives a bit of a warning and a bit of encouragement in terms of stirring us to live right in our lives. So verse 6 says, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now there's a popular subject. The wrath of God. Thanks very much, Paul. It's just what my mates need to hear. I just want to sort of talk briefly about, uh, it's a big subject. 
I don't, I don't think Paul gives this as a watch out or the wrath of God is coming on you, people of God. No, we're accepted and loved by God, but he wants us to reflect again. Do you not realise, don't kid yourselves, these things that sometimes you dabble with, you tinker with, that you haven't put to death, that you haven't got rid of and thrown off, the wrath of God is coming because of these things. Stop pretending that maybe they're okay. I don't like that one, but that one doesn't seem so bad. Stop dabbling around. The wrath of God is coming these things. I don't think it's a warning as to you can lose your salvation or anything like that. They're just saying, get real with this stuff. Don't you understand how God really feels about it? Apparently in a survey, uh, I, I don't know where, but reading one of the conscious, survey group of uh, Christians, uh, 96% of them said they felt God was loving. I'm not quite sure happened to even 4% there, but anyway, 96% thought they were love, uh, God was loving, but only 37% thought that God was judging. Now, see, these things, that's not right, by the way. God is completely loving, and he is the judge. He is the one uh, that holds every right to demonstrate wrath, God's righteous anger against all that is wrong in the world. But it can be hard to swallow, can't it? But his wrath is not some, like... Um, uh, sort of lightning bolt, uh, just sort of um, whenever he feels like it, on a whim, like that. It's an implacable, unmovable feeling, or feeling's not, in, not right, is it? But stance towards everything that's wrong, our sin and the destruction. That's how God feels about things. Totally loving, totally against, uh, you know, everything that's wrong. Hopefully a couple of angles to help us think a bit differently maybe about God's wrath. So people tend to treat sin as something to be dreaded only if it is detected. Can you relate to that? Don't lie to yourself. Can you relate to that? Your own sin? I hope no one finds out. That's what you're worried about, not the sin itself. Resonates with me. They fear getting caught and hope that God, that maybe God is not looking or that perhaps God can be propitiated in some way to spare them from retribution. That means appeased. In fact, of course, he is. Jesus is our propitiation. Praise God. There wouldn't be much point any of us being here. But sin is like cancer that grows out of control and destroys other parts of ourselves. The cancer is the deadly thing, not the detection. This so resonated with me. The cancer, it's the sin that's deadly to you, not when it comes to light. That's when the cure starts. Only after the cancer's been diagnosed can treatment begin. You know, some of the way God's wrath appears in the Bible is God's wrath is leaving you in your sin. It's just leaving you there. Romans chapter 1 contains it. God's wrath in part in his brief <laughs> bit on it, is in part just leaving you where you're at because it's the sin that's so damaging. Now, people will disagree as to whether God's right as to that's a sin or that's not a sin. Well, people have opinions, stuff like that, but please, can we just get in us and understand that when the Bible speaks about God's wrath against sin, it's not because he's just in a whim gone, I don't like that and I don't like it. It's because he genuinely, whether you agree with him or not, thinks that is cancerous in your life and because of his love, doesn't want you to come out of it and his righteous judgment and anger on you, his wrath is actually to leave you in it. That's part of God's wrath at the very least. It's maybe you think, oh, okay, that's maybe a bit different. Second angle on God's wrath. Humans who are not angry at injustice, cruelty and corruption cannot be thoroughly good persons. 
you know, I read the other day, a bit weird, that some people are so wanting to still make sure the Holocaust is never forgotten, as which I'm not saying it's a bad thing, wants to make it a law against denying it, which is, strikes me as a bit over the top, to be honest. But, you know, they don't want anybody that denies the Holocaust. It's like, they're awful. How can you do that? That's a complete travesty, injustice. You know, every sane person goes, it was awful. Okay, you're kind of, your judgment's on it, on that whole episode. And anyone that denies it is, you know, normally gets slated and told off terribly. If people sort of go blasé about the whole Jimmy Savile and the horrors of that fiasco and all, all the stuff he was doing, young children and stuff, go, oh, it doesn't really matter. No, it calls for justice. And one of the reasons it sticks so much is because now he's died and people feel you can't bring justice. We all want justice for things. We just disagree as to what exactly is just and over who's really got the authority and right to do it, which God claims to be the perfect judge and the one with total authority. People, of course, are going to disagree with that. But I would say, once it's not actually wrath and judgment itself, you might say, is exactly the problem. Because we all feel the same way, often, about ourselves. Often quite happy to judge somebody, be wrathful quite quickly if we're the one that's been offended and sinned against. Uh, it's a bit different when we've done it. We think we should be receiving mercy and grace so often, isn't it? But the concept of being angry against injustice and sin, that's, we're all like that, I'd say, because we're made in the image of God. It's just where you draw the line and who's taking the authority that we disagree with. But Paul says, because of those things, the wrath of God is coming. Let's not fool ourselves. He doesn't like them. And then more encouragingly, he goes after the second is he says, because you put on the new self, that's what God said, put on the new self, which is being renewed in the image of its creator. We're not come out of some primeval soup, evolutionary beings. God made you. He loves you. You're in his image. And when you become a Christian, it's like something of that image is renewed again in him. And the working out of Christian life is the constant renewal of that, day by day. It's growing in his glory, in his image. It's if you like, this is the ultimate uh, sort of ambition, I would say, of, sort of Paul and should be of ourselves. So actually, we can become more like him who made us. We can become more Christ-like. We can look like Jesus. That should be our great ambition of our life, that we put to death things that affect it. We get rid of things that affect it because what we want to do is become more like the saviour who we love. More like God who has given his life for us. I don't know what your ambitions in life may be, how you may describe about being you know, popular or more money, successful at work and uh, have a family, not have a family, get married, not get married. All these things in life that want to grow. For every Christian, the ultimate ambition might say is become more like Jesus. And that's successful life, if you like. You know, we heard about the, the waves sort of picture, the surfboard, you know, crashing around, life crashing around us, okay? But if we're growing, becoming more like Jesus, everything else could be going wrong around us, it feels. Is his grace sufficient, we're asking? Yes, it is, we just heard. But what's going on? But are we becoming more like Jesus, day by day, inwardly being renewed? Points to encourage the Colossians and us saying, this is no less what's on the cards for us. You're hungry after that. You can become like Jesus, Step by step, more by more. I don't want, well, I want all that stuff. I want to live the life he's given me and become uh, more like him. Paul finishes off 
Uh, this bit here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. You could have a whole sermon on this uh, easily. It'll be very quick. Uh, we, have, we live in a very individual society. Paul wants to draw this, this is how life should not look like, get rid of these things, uh, and he draws it straight into the new humanity that Jesus has created. It's not just about you, and your new life, therefore living it out, it's about us and our new life that God has called us into, where because of the new life in Jesus, everything else, every past background, culture, uh, race, uh, it's, just, it's all irrelevant now. That no, there's a new humanity. It's not even just like a different community. It's that different. It's like you become a whole new people group. It's what Jesus has created. And to work that out, in many ways, to, to, for, for the community to work, is to cut off stuff from the old life. And much of the way we cut stuff off from the old life is by living in the community, and maybe half the time, not getting on as well as we should be getting on with each other, but that's how we learn and grow. I often uh, think, as a pastor, you think it's interesting how we easily we get upset when community church life goes wrong, because surely all Christians should know better, Yes, we should, but the whole point of these things is half the time we don't and we do upset each other and we do get it wrong. We do need to, you know, say stop doing that, you shouldn't do that. We do need to get alongside each other. And I think Paul envisages this new humanity together, working out the new life, putting to death, getting rid of that uh, he has called us to. It's interesting that Christianity, um, it, it is that tension we like going, Christianity is inclusive, it's open to all. Whoever you are now in this room, come to Jesus. He will accept you. He loves you now. He will give you new life. He will forgive you your sin. It's inclusive. Anyone can come. No Jew, Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised. And yet there is an exclusivity, if you like, of the behaviours the, uh, and the attitudes of us that is part of that new life. It is both intention, completely inclusive for anyone, and yet there's behaviour and stuff which Paul said is just not compatible. That's outside the kingdom, it's outside the new life, that, and we can't fool ourselves on that. There's a tension sometimes, isn't it? And the way we uh, convey Christianity and our faith to the people around us. Yet we've got to walk that wisely, asking God for grace and living well as well as we can. There are... Um, we we'll start with two things, two ways. I just want to uh, respond in that. And yes, Jim, we're going to take communion in a, a second. So, can I encourage us to rethink, to really be ruthless with ourselves, uh, with our lives, to not lie to ourselves, to not kid ourselves that um, some of the way we live our life, almost, unless anyone here has claimed to be perfect, okay, okay, again, again, just. So, apart from my wife, of course, no, but just, let's be ruthless. Let's be ruthless, rooting out the things in our life that are just not godly, putting them to death, ridding them. Don't be scared, if you like, of being honest with yourself and honest before God. Because the second one says, believe more strongly that he has given you new life. You are accepted in Christ. That's the whole reason why you need to be more ruthless. It's not either or. It's not, oh my word, if I admit actually, really, this is in me. I'm like this, this is so ugly. I don't even like myself for this. 
I feel dirty, I feel ashamed. And Jesus wants to say, no, I've forgiven you. I've cleansed you. I've washed you. There is no shame. There is no guilt. The price is paid. It's all sorted, but put it to death. Be more ruthless, but believe more strongly. And can I say, if you know that you're not a Christian, you've never yet given your life to Jesus, then I'd encourage you to do that. And we're going to take up communion. Um, So there's going to be a couple of guys coming down the front here, I believe, with some... Uh, bread and wine, um, and we are running out of time, sorry. Um, what I'd like to do in a second is, once all of Christians, go and get the bread and the wine uh, and bring it back to your seat, and like to, we'll all take it together. Um, so, um, maybe if Joe can come and tinkle around a little bit, whatever you do, <laughs> make it sound good. So, gosh, so, because we haven't quite finished, <laughs> so if you'd like to go and get some bread and wine, there should be some guys down in front here and come back to your seat. Yes, yeah, so, so at the back and at the front as well. So two stations about two at the front. So hopefully it won't take long. So obviously it will always take a, a little while, but if you get your bread and wine, come and sit back down. So Pete, do you want to come and share quickly? In a second, I'd like us to take communion together and, uh, and I'll pray for us. <coughs> Pete's just got something like to share. Um, just as Vic got up, um, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a picture of um, like a caterpillar and a butterfly. And actually, God has made us to be butterflies now. We are a new creation. We're completely different. And, um, and, and all of this list of stuff that Vic's been talking about is God saying to a butterfly, stop behaving like a caterpillar. Stop crawling around in the dirt. Stop eating dirty leaves. Fly, open your wings, and drink the sugary nectar that I've called you to drink. Be the person that I've called you to be. Great, thank you. As I said, let's be more ruthless. Let's believe more strongly. I feel, of course, that's so reflected in the cross and as we take communion, remembering what Jesus did in his death and his resurrection for us. Jesus was the most ruthless person that's ever walked this earth with sin, never having anything to do with it, and yet so hating it, he was willing to have his body broken and his blood shed because of our sin. And we, of course, are called to nothing less, really, than to be as ruthless in those footsteps. And as we take the bread and the wine, let's remember Jesus who was so ruthless and so dedicated on our behalf. And yet, of course, it speaks of how accepted we are, that he hasn't stood at a distance and said, oh, I've done it, see if you can get on with it. We can't just get on with it. We need his power in us. That's why if we're going to be ruthless with any effect, we must believe that his new life is in us, that his death and res- his death brought about his resurrection so that now we have new life in him and we have genuine hope because of him.
because of him that we can live differently and become more like him day by day. So shall we take the bread and the wine? Jesus, we thank you again. Lord, we thank you again for the cross, for your life lived, your death given for us, the blood that you shed, the body broken. Lord, and the fact that you were perfect, death couldn't hold you. Three days later, you're alive again, Lord God. And that we here get to live in the good of that, Lord God. Of freeing us from our sin, Lord. Of giving us new life, Lord, and filling us with hope. And we say, as you released your spirit to us because of that great act on the cross, Lord God, we pray, Spirit of God, will you fill us? Will you strengthen us to be, show great resolve, Lord God, to be more ruthless with the way we live our lives, to become more like you, Lord Jesus? Lord, we confess, we know we don't do it by just our own willpower or anything stupid like that. We want your life, your resurrection power to rise up in us, Lord God, and to live that way. And we just pray for all of us here. Come on us and help us, Lord. Different things, each of the struggles will be different in different ways, Lord God, but there's always hope in you because you have destroyed everything that stood against you as you rose again from the dead. We love you, Lord Jesus. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Just one final comment, one final bit of conclusion. I want us to be ruthless, to believe more, also just want to really iterate as we, we finish and we finish on this, that if you think you can live those things on your own, you have totally missed the point of what Paul's getting at in this life as a community together, the no barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. We need each other. That's why he made a new humanity, his church. And although our systems and our structures are far from perfect as any church will be, I'd just like to say to you, if you're here and basically your only connection with City Hope is through Sundays, you are missing stuff by a mile in your life for God if this is your church. In all seriousness, you need to get closer to people so that you can input into their lives and they can input into your lives. And it, during the week... Often a week we organise ourselves in what we call connect communities and connect groups. They are not everything but so much a relationship and strong accountability stuff flows out of those places. I'm not saying they're the only place for them, but you need to connect yourself into the life of the church. If you want to be ruthless, you want to be, be believing more strongly of who God's made you be, you need to be around Christians at other times during the week so that they can affirm that in you and hold you accountable to things. And just encourage you, pick up one of our Get Connected cards, fill it in and say, I need to get more involved in the life of the church. It's not just a way of doing church. Some of it's the way we do things, to be sure. But it's trying to reflect what God's heart for our lives should look like. Thank you very much. We're going to uh, finish there. Um, as we go and get children, can I bring, just bring you back to uh, Denise earlier on spoke about uh, where stuff, things may be said to you in your childhood is really affecting the way you're encountering God and enjoying his life in you now. And uh, please come and respond to that. Come down the front and get some prayer for that. Or indeed for anything else you like prayer for, physical healing, there'll be some guys available for prayer uh, down the front here. <laughs>